1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Jadim Sulongkomer, the host of this channel. Today, I'm here with Dr. Daniel Kapper to talk about his book, Roaming Free Like a Deer, Buddhism and the Natural World. And I think in Buddhism, this is something which is very much talked about in a sense that Buddhism and its relation with the natural world and the environment. And, um, Dr. Daniel Geber also brings about his work in a very fascinating and interesting way looking at uh, different um, countries that are there. So hopefully the listeners will have a really interesting time and delving into this very topic with the author himself. So Dr. Geber, can you tell us something about yourself? Yeah.
0: Uh, There's something about myself. I'm originally from the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, I have graduate degrees from the University of Virginia and the University of Chicago in the United States. And um, since graduating from the University of Chicago with a Ph.D., I've been a scholar for more than 20 years. I've been teaching classes on comparative religion, classes on environmental ethics, and doing a great deal of research in the world of environmental ethics, both on Earth, and that's the subject of uh, our talk today, and also increasingly in space because space exploration introduces a variety of ecological problems like what do we do with our space debris and so on so this is what i've been doing i'm trained in the study of religion and science um in that world buddhism is the religion with which i am most familiar and so i use buddhism and science dialogues to create uh environmental ethics
1: yeah really interesting so um you know this particular work as you have Told us that you are trained in Buddhism and science, and, and this particular work has to do with uh, in Brahman, which is very much related to the kind of training that you have. So, um, you know, how did you come about with the idea of this particular work, or what influence to actually come up or write this very particular book? Yeah.
0: Well, there were a couple of influences. First, um, as I said, I study comparative religion, and at one point I noticed that there were very good books about how Christianity. Uh, interacts with the environment. And there was another really good book about how Muslims interact with the environment, but there was no such book about Buddhism. And I thought that that needed to be rectified. And in the course of looking into that, I discovered um, that that, uh, again and again, we found uh, answers from the Buddhist world in terms of climate change coming up in terms of Buddhism is the best religion to help us to deal with climate change. I found variations of this claim again and again in various sources. The idea that of all the religions of the world, Buddhism is the best for helping us to deal with climate change. And a lot of people made this claim, but really didn't substantiate it, and it made me wonder, is Buddhism really the best religion for climate change? If so, is there one form of Buddhism that is better than others? So I I set out to answer this question by studying Buddhism really quite broadly. I went back to the time of the Buddha and studied the Buddha's biography so I could understand relationships between Buddhists and the natural world, even back then. Um, And then I looked in different places in the Buddhist world again, so that we could understand how Buddhists may be similar or different in their approaches to things. Um, So I studied uh, relationships between Buddhism and the natural environment in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, in China, in Japan, in Tibet, and in the modern West, um, as a way of taking a sample across the Buddhist world from all three great sects of Theravada, uh, Mahayana and Vajrayana, to get a sense of exactly how Buddhists do and do not interact with the natural world in terms of ramifications for climate change. So this is where the book came from. I really wanted to test that claim. Is Buddhism the best religion for climate change?
1: Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I think that's a very, you know, um, worthy uh, research and the investigation to do. That's really interesting. Yeah. So coming to the um, contents of the book, one of the things that you kind of highlight in beginning of the book is the aspect of what you call as the three touch points. And the first touch point is the aspect of Buddhist veg- uh, vegetarianism. The second is non-human religiosity, and third that is uh, nature mysticism. So what, what are these three touch points about and how does it relate to the uh, book that or the arguments in the book? Yeah. Well,
0: that, that's a very interesting question. Um, as I said, I wanted to be able to um, compare and contrast different approaches. If Buddhists in Sri Lanka are different in the way they deal with climate change than our Buddhists in Japan, um, I really wanted to know that. Um, and until I wrote my book, we didn't have a good synthetic... Um, resource that would help us to understand these things. Um, So I did this study across uh, different Buddhist cultures, like I mentioned, and then I used three touch points as a way of helping me to compare and contrast different forms of Buddhism. Um, One of these touch points is vegetarianism. As I'm sure you know, a lot of people think that Part of the solution to climate change is for all of us to eat more vegetarian diets. And among some people, Buddhism has a reputation for uh, being vegetarian. So I use the vegetarianism touch point to try to understand um, the relationships of different forms of Buddhism um, to various forms of culinary exercise. And what I found is that uh, Buddhism makes an interesting but in the end kind of unstable platform for vegetarian. that highlight that through reincarnation, humans get born as animals and animals get born as humans, so that if we eat animals, we are actually eating our ancestors. And there's a very strong Buddhist argument that's made in many texts this way, that why would you ever eat an animal? That's your grandmother reincarnated. Um, So on one side, there's a strong element in Buddhism which supports vegetarianism. But on the other side of these arguments are often neglected. Um, In the Theravada Buddhist world, the scriptures are full of stories of meat eating by the Buddha and by other people. Um, and this is not just in the Theravada world. You can find various Mahayana forms of Buddhism that accept meat eating. And in the Vajrayana Buddhist world, sometimes people accept eat meat eating every day, excuse me. But also meat eating is a, form, is a part of some Vajrayana rituals. There's some uh, Tantric Buddhist rituals that require people to eat meat. So on one hand, Buddhism offers great pleas for us to be vegetarians, and on the other hand, sometimes it takes these pleas away. But it's interesting to understand different forms of Buddhism in terms of their relationship to vegetarianism in terms of these valences. Um, the second touch point is related to this. Um, Mainline Buddhism says that only humans can become enlightened, that only humans can realize the religious goal of nirvana. That being said, there are a gajillion apocryphal stories and so on that run around the Buddhist world um, in which non-humans are taken to practice religion in their own rights. And this is really stirring as a way of trying to understand Buddhism's relationship to the environment. And again, much like vegetarianism, it kind of cuts two ways. Um, On one hand, in many cases, uh, we find Buddhists treating non-humans as persons in their own rights, and not just as persons, but persons with spiritual sensibilities. So, for instance, we find from China a story of a tiger who wandered into the middle of a Buddhist ritual and the Buddhist leader who was running the ritual, instead of freaking out that a tiger was there, um, instead he gave the bodhisattva vow to the tiger. He gave religious teachings to the tiger. Um, The Buddha's disciples gave religious teachings to animals. The Buddha himself, in a couple of stories, gave religious teachings to animals. And this only makes sense if animals can have their own certain religious sensibility. But again, that is not shared across the Buddhist tradition. And it's really interesting to see the times when... um, Buddhists do and do not accord religiosity to animals and even sometimes plants. Um, And then the third touch point was nature mysticism. There are a number of people, interpreters of the Buddhist tradition, who frankly describe it as nature mystical. And that did not sit with me when I started my research, and my research showed that um, even more how troublesome that uh, that way of looking at the world can be if I define nature mysticism as a non-dual experience with the sacred on one hand Buddhism does the mainline texts do not want us to have nature mystical experiences um, the Buddha himself taught against this. Uh, There's a, a famous story from the life of the Buddha when he sat out overnight in a wicked thunderstorm, a thunderstorm that was so severe that it destroyed houses in the town where he was. But the Buddha sat outside throughout the thunderstorm, completely unperturbed. He was in such a deep state of meditation that he didn't even know the storm was going on. Now, needless to say, a religion that encourages us to absorb ourselves so much that we don't even know we're getting rained on is not a religion that necessarily puts us directly in touch with the non-human natural world. So there's not as much nature mysticism in the Buddhist world as some people seem to think. That being said, again, Buddhism is a diverse and old religious tradition. There are exceptions to every rule. And an exception here would be the nature mysticism that we find coming from the Vajrayana Buddhist world, Tantric Buddhist world, like we find in Bhutan, where we find various Buddhists who um, mandalize mountains. They turn mountains into holy mandalas, into holy depictions of sacred, perfect realms. And then the idea is, if you meditate while climbing this mountain, then you can meditate on moving through these different sacred worlds. And in this way, the map of the mountain in a physical sense becomes allied with a consciousness map, of a person moving towards enlightenment and in this way the landscape becomes very sacralized in this way people definitely seek non-dual experiences of sacredness with the natural world through buddhist practices but again these uh, really interesting uh, vajrayana practices do not represent the whole tradition. On the whole, the tradition is not as nature mystical as some people seem to think.
1: Really interesting. And these uh, touch points are really interesting and very uh, important kite for actually talking about this aspect. So, another conceptual aspect that you bring in is the aspect of Buddhist relational animism. And I think relational animism is something which I also personally kind of really work on. Um, you know, Karm Harvey and all of those people, um, you know, delve into this. So, when I saw this, it was really interesting that you brought about this uh, aspect, a Trish uh, perspective. So, how are you bringing this uh, perspective in your work here? Yeah.
0: Um, Environmental ethics is a fairly new field. Um, Ethics has been around for millennia, of course, but specifically oriented towards the environment. This is something kind of new in human experience. And over the last few decades, environmental ethicists from around the world have started to develop greater personhood, uh, foci, which I touched on before. This is the idea of treating um, a non-human as a person in its own right, not as a human person. To treat a tree as a human person is a terrible mistake. If we do that, we can never understand the tree. But if we treat a tree as a tree person, With an agenda of its own, with life experiences, if I can put it that way, of its own, then we can come to a great understanding of what it is to be a tree. And even outside the world of ethics, just in the world of animal studies, you find more and more animal studies scholars turning to personhood approaches because often the best way to learn about an animal is to treat it as a person. Let's take, for instance, the the higher primates, chimpanzees, uh, baboons, excuse me, and so on. If you watch their behavior, they treat each other as persons. And so we're not really entering a chimpanzee's world unless we do the same. Now, in terms of environmental ethics, taking these personhood approaches, can really help us to interact with the non-human natural world in more wholesome and more clear ways. Because there are a variety of beings out there that we can treat as persons. And they don't even have to be living. There are a variety of scholars who talk about how um, effective it is to bring personhood approaches to non-living things. Um, There's a a geography, Yifu Tuan, who talks about the fact that we cannot understand our relationships just with mountains and just with rivers without understanding that to at least some humans um, now and through history, they appear as persons. So again, I'm not talking about treating non-humans as human persons, that's a terrible mistake. But we can talk about river persons and mountain persons, tree persons, buffalo persons, and so on. And when we do, our environmental ethics become very powerful. They become very powerful in an ethical and philosophical sense. They also become more powerful in a legal sense. The Whanganui River in New Zealand is now a preserved river because the local tribe went to court and argued argued that the Wanganui River had been a person in their tribe for millennia, so it should be the tribe, not developers, who take care of the river. And that argument won in court. So personhood arguments have legal teeth, uh, too. What I did in my book was... Uh, take these personhood approaches and kind of reform them in in a concept that I call relational animism um, as a research tool. Um, I wanted to understand how different Buddhists interact with the natural environment, and you need an interpretive grid for that kind of activity. And so I took personhood approaches from... um, Uh, philosophical ethics and applied them in a methodology in which I understood how different Buddhists interacted with the natural environment by trying to understand when they accorded personhood to things and when they did not so accord personhood to things. Um, An example that I use in the book um, deals with the Buddhist disciples um, one of whom fell sick, so the other disciple went to the Himalayas to get lotus stalks, so he can make lotus stalk medicine. And so he arrived at a pond in the Himalayas, and a team of elephants was happy in this story to help out the disciples of the Buddha. So it was actually an elephant that bounded into the pond and pulled out lotus stalks and reverentially offered them to the Buddhist disciples. And the Buddhist disciples then turned those lotus stalks um, into medicine and people started feeling better. Now, the interesting thing about this story is that the elephants are treated as persons. They have names, they have personalities, they are treated with great respect the same way that we may respect a human person. But in the same story, the lotus stalks were not. The lotus stalks were just objects there to help to create medicine. And so in trying to understand how Buddhists interact with the natural world in this story, we can clearly see a difference between humans and plants because, uh, excuse me, animals and plants, because the non-human animals get accorded personhood and the plants do not. In this case, um, non- animals non-human animals like elephants are accorded greater ethical value than our plants. And we see this in the in the way that personhood is either um, accorded or not. And so I find this a really helpful way of understanding um, across cultures. This doesn't have to be in a Buddhist world. Uh, of understanding how humans interact with the natural world. We can learn a lot if we decode in terms of times when we treat non-humans as persons and times when we don't and try to understand from there what these uh, differential treatments mean.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very um, good uh, test kit to actually kind of understand this um, environment and how you know human and the environment relates to each other. Uh, now, one of the another concept and very important concept that you kind of um, delve into is where you uh, kind of borrow from work of Dim Incol, one of the anthropologists uh, there, and this is where you delve into the very aspect of how human and uh, how human understanding environment in in a sense the on the nature of the environment and how that uh, understanding of that actually helps human relate to the environment. So uh, coming to the Buddhism and coming to the Buddhism and coming to your work, uh, how, uh, what are some of the different, uh, you know, ways and, and ways of how, you know, the human and the environment kind of, uh, you know, posits their ontological position in Buddhism and how do you incorporate, uh, you know, Tim in, in, in course uh, view here? Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit?
0: Uh, Yeah, I I sure can. Um, uh, If you're writing a book about Buddhism in the natural world, as you have implicitly touched on, you touch on ontological issues of how we understand what exists and how it exists and so on. And when I'm writing about the natural world, I'm led into philosophical literature that talks about how um, our concepts of nature are culturally shaped. The different cultures shape for us in our heads how we understand nature, what we understand nature to be, what we understand nature not to be. So, for instance, when ancient Roman emperors had big animal sacrifice of spectacles, big animal sacrifice festivals. They were operating on a different cultural understanding of what nature is than do many of us now who would be appalled by um, big animal sacrifice festivals. But there's a deeper vein of philosophical literature led by Tim Engold, who you mentioned, that questions even this. Um, Engel says that if you look at indigenous peoples, what you don't find is a cultural construction of nature. What you find instead is that nature is built into human experience from the very beginning, not as a human construction, but as something that exists in its own right. That Tim Engel highlights the fact that indigenous peoples um, tend not to try to cram all of the natural world into human culture, and instead they respect the natural world on its own, existing on its own outside of human culture. This leads to some of the personhood relationships um, that I was talking about, but it's a very different way of understanding things. If I rephrase things, um, in trying to understand Buddhist ontologies, I wouldn't do um, enough if I just said that Buddhism is culturally shaped in its attitudes towards nature different than our other religions. Instead, to examine Buddhism and its relationship with the natural world, following the critique of Ingold that nature is not just culturally created, what I had to do was start from the ground up. I had to start with Buddhist resources and talk about the Buddhist natural world as it exists from those resources and so this is nature in my book um i'm talking about the meaning of the word nature i do not draw uh, um derive the meaning of the word nature from a modern philosophical non-buddhist source or anything like that even though there's some really interesting definitions of nature out there but instead to remain true to my subject material what i did was notice how buddhists themselves over the centuries have understood their place in the natural world. And I use that as my ontology to move forward with, not an ontology, not an understanding of what exists that is drawn from modern philosophy. In this way, I tried to remain true to Buddhist sensibilities by using their concept of nature, not a concept of nature that was imported from somewhere else.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So, having uh, laid the foundational aspect of the concepts that are there, having clarified all of those aspects, now let's move on to the examples that you bring in in the discussion. And this um, constitutes the major part of the discussion that you do in the book, also. So, uh, let us quickly uh, move into this aspect. And firstly, you talk about Buddha and his interaction with the non-human beings. The way conceptually you use non-human beings. So, uh, can you elaborate a little bit on how uh, how does Buddha interact with the non-human beings, or how does Buddha himself understand this aspect of non-human beings? Yeah,
0: right. That's a great question because, in many ways, the the imprint of the Buddha is left on other forms of Buddhism, and you can clearly see the Buddha's own relationships with nature written into Japanese Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Sri Lankan Buddhism, you name it, because the Buddha himself interacted with non-human natural beings through personhood approaches, like I mentioned. Um, When he was a young boy, he healed an injured swan who he treated as a person. As an adult, once he became the Buddha, he freed a, a, a bull that was intended for slaughter so that people can eat it precisely by treating that bull as a person. And on uh, another occasion, and this is one of my favorite stories from the life of the Buddha, the Buddha was in the midst of his disciples and fans and so on, but he loved solitude and the noise got to be too much for him. So without telling anyone at one point, the Buddha just left, He just disappeared and took a vacation off into the wilderness, excuse me. At that same time, so goes this story, there was a bull elephant who likewise was in the middle of this herd and he had to deal with youngsters eating all the good young growth and all that stuff. So he decided he had had enough of communal living and he wanted a solo vacation. And so he left the herd and also repaired to the forest. And so goes the story. The elephant and the Buddha ended up Going to the same place so that they could get away from their everyday responsibilities and so on and enjoy some quiet solitude. And the Buddha noticed this. The Buddha noticed that the elephant was up to the same thing that he was, that the elephant and the Buddha had um, the same uh, agenda, if I can put it that way. And the Buddha felt an intense Closeness with the elephant on this basis, and he treated the elephant as a person. Again, not as a human person, but as an elephant person. And I can keep on going. There's so many stories of from the Buddha about this, where he treated various non humans, um, including snakes. By the way, there's a provocative example, including snakes, uh, treated them as non human persons in a very respectful way. Again, not as Uh, human persons but as cobra persons. And then these examples are written into the scriptures. The scriptures travel to different Buddhist lands and different Buddhists have then learned from the Buddhist personhood examples. So you can find personhood relationships with the non-human natural world in all forms of Buddhism It's complex why these personhood relationships exist, but one reason why is they're derived from the example of the Buddha, the Buddha himself, related to the non-human natural world in terms of personhood approaches.
1: Yeah. Moving on to the next one. and this is where you talk about Sri Lanka, the early adopters of Buddhism and this is where you bring in the example of Theravada Buddhism. and then one of the uh, the non-human aspects that you're looking at here is the aspect of P. So what does it teach about um, the Theravada Buddhist relation about uh, on the non-human aspect of the uh, reality that is there. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit more here? Yeah.
0: Right. Um, The example of the Buddhist personhood relationships with nature um, end up vibrantly in Sri Lankan Buddhism in a number of ways. The great holy Buddhist mountain that some call Adam's Peak, um, that gets treated as a person by Sri Lankan Buddhists. Um, And there's a really interesting story from the Sri Lankan master, Buddha Gosha. Buddha Gosha um, was very interested in the non-human natural world and at least at times treated non-humans as persons in their own right, including a bee who he felt taught the Buddhist message as well as anybody, uh, as any human he knew. Um, He highlighted that um, if a bee is over eager it will overshoot the mark and not find the honey because it's too busy um, running around looking. And that if a bee is too lazy, then by the time it gets to the honey, everybody else would have taken it. But a bee who is in the middle, who is neither too excited nor too lazy, arrives at the honey at the perfect time and takes the honey uh, for her or himself. And in this way, for Buddha Gosha, um, the smart bee models the middle way of Buddhism. The Buddha himself taught that we should always take the middle way between extremes, Um, And that this is the best way to go through life. So in this case, a bee who is treated as a person by the great Buddhist master Buddha Gosha teaches us how to behave.
1: Great. Interesting. Yeah. And this the, another example that where you talk about Mahayana um, Buddhism relation to the non-human um, is the aspect of where you talk about the Thai buffaloes. So can you elaborate in short about how this example brings in the uh, perspective on Mahayana's understanding of the non-human beings? Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Well, in in terms of the Thai buffaloes, this is a really interesting um, scenario that unfolded in Thailand over the last few decades. Um, There was a great leader in Chiang Mai um, who had a monastery, and a man came to get a blessing from him and offered a buffalo as kind of payment for that blessing. And so suddenly there's now a buffalo in the monastery. And other people heard this and they started to give buffaloes to the monastery. Now the monastery doesn't have much use for buffaloes in themselves, um, in itself. So what the Buddhist leader did Ludupoj, he um, created buffalo beauty contests as an expression of what he considered to be Buddhist compassion, in which he would accept gifts of buffaloes and give blessings to the giver. Um, And then the buffaloes that were given to the monastery would then be given to poor farmers, who could then use the buffaloes to pull plows and, um, in that way, um, create economic prosperity for the region. Um, What this Thai Buddhist leader was trying to do was take ordinary buffalo donations and turn them into something that would really benefit not only the animals in his region, but also the humans in this region. And to uh, magnify this and to make this more visible, make this a more active campaign among local people, he started holding buffalo beauty contests in which the buffalo were brought to be um, uh, given away to poor farmers, like I mentioned, first were examined for their beauty so that the the donors, in a sense, this is more for the donors than the buffaloes themselves, so that the donors could feel good about what they are doing. And so that the whole thing of a rich person gives a buffalo that then benefits a poor person so that this whole dynamic could be um, marketed, I guess, maybe that's not the right word. It, it could be um publicized so that this uh, dynamic could continue so it's very odd to think about buffaloes within a buddhist monastery there's not a lot of uh precedent there but in this case what we find is really intelligent and creative buddhists turning what appears to be a weird situation into an opportunity that benefits lots of different people
1: mm, yeah interesting Coming to the next example quickly, you talk about China and the aspect of eating the enlightened plants. Very interesting. So, can you elaborate a little bit on this one? Yeah. This
0: I sure can. China is a really fascinating area of the Buddhist world because of the kinds of tensions that it manifests. On one hand, if you want vegetarian Buddhism, China is where you want to go. Chinese Buddhism is the king Buddhism of vegetarianism. And in fact, in Chinese Buddhism, unlike other forms of Buddhism, it was mandated long ago that all Buddhist monastics must be vegetarian. So there's this great vegetarian side to Chinese Buddhism, but of course, and I'm not picking on vegetarianism here, vegetarianism inherently encourages people not to eat animals, but to eat plants instead. So, a vegetarian lifestyle is one that encourages the eating of plants. And so, this Chinese vegetarianism uh, resides really interestingly, counterposed to another trend that we find in historical Chinese Buddhism, which is the idea that plants are Buddhas. Here, the philosophical idea in Mahayana Buddhism is that the entire natural world is already enlightened. The entire natural world is already a Buddha that teaches to us. Now, if this is true, then it must be that plants are enlightened, too. And this is not a traditional Buddhist teaching. The traditional Buddhist teaching is that plants are just plants. They're just objects. But in this case chinese buddhists use mahayana philosophy especially as drawn from the lotus sutra which talks about how the whole universe becomes enlightened they use this universalistic philosophy to argue about how plants are enlightened that plants are buddhas and we can take religious teachings From these plant Buddhas. So China offers this really fascinating counterposition of vegetarianism concerned to eat more plants on one hand, and on the other hand, a philosophical respect for plants as enlightened.
1: Yeah, interesting. Now, coming to the nature mysticism, you talk about the Japanese Water Buddhas. Um, So, And this is where you talk about how it is an implication of the Zen Buddhism that is there. So can you elaborate a little bit on this uh, example? Yeah.
0: I sure can. The example of Japanese Water Buddhas is drawn from the work of the great Buddhist philosopher Dogen from Japan. Dogen's work is really quite remarkable. Dogen talks in his philosophy, much like I was just talking about how the entire natural world is already enlightened. The entire natural world is already a Buddha. So, for instance, in some really startling prose, Dogen tells us that mountains walk that they are living beings and they walk. They don't walk like humans, Dogen tells us that much. You have to be um, deeply enmeshed with the mountains to really understand this walking, Dogen says. But still, Dogen treats mountains as respected individuals, as enlightened individuals. And in the same text, Dogen writes about how in every body of water there are Buddhas that every world contains Buddhas because every world is enlightened. So even that glass of water that's sitting on the table in front of you is a glass full of Buddhas and you can take spiritual teachings from that water if you meditate deeply enough and focus deeply enough on water, not as an object, But as something that can teach us helpful lessons, both in terms of developing our own spirituality, but also in terms of um, managing our positive relationships with the natural world.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Now coming to debate, uh, and this is where in debate you talk about the releasing of animals in debate that is and this is where you kind of uh, delve into this concept of soul sharing and soul residence. So can you, um, you know, elaborate this a little bit and how you bring in these concepts in this example? Yeah.
0: Well, there's a lot to talk about right there. And the the question that you just asked, I'll focus right now on soul sharing because this is really unique in uh, the Tibetan cultural world. The ancient uh, Maya of Central America had kind of similar ideas, but um, what we see here is really unique um, besides that. In traditional Tibetan culture, um, people are taught that from birth, we share our soul with natural beings around us like an ox a bird a lake a mountain a tree and um, the idea here is while we're sleeping our souls travel right and this is what gives us dreams dreams are memories of our traveling souls and a traveling soul is vulnerable. It can be captured by a demon or something. So the idea is there are safe havens, safe places where your soul can reside. And these safe havens are the ones that I just mentioned, the ties that you develop from birth with a specific bird, specific tree, specific animal, and so on. And so, In this way of looking at the world, humans and the non-human natural world are not really separate because I share souls with a bird and a bird shares souls with me. And I can share souls with a mountain and a mountain can share souls with me. And so many of us have this idea that human beings are completely separate from the natural world, that the natural world and humanity really are are just different realms. And this idea of soul sharing just Uh, takes that whole idea down. This idea of Tibetan soul sharing highlights how we can be deeply integrated with non-human natural beings in a way that we are not separate from them. Uh, My soul bird, if my soul bird dies today, then I'm probably going to die. If my soul bird gets sick, then I'm probably going to get sick. And so in this way, we learn that Humans are not separate from the non-human natural world the way that we like to think. And secondly, we learn a lesson in taking care of the non-human natural world. If I and my family members share souls with these various animals, trees, mountains, and so on, then it behooves us to uh, ecologically protect them. It behooves us to care for the animals and mountains and lakes and so on around us because um, human, not just animal life and so on, but human life depends on them because in this model, we are not separate at all from the natural world.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So, lastly, you come to the Western Buddhist tradition, and um, where you talk about the natural persons in the West, and this is where you engages with how the West uh, understand its relation with the aspect of relational animism and nature mysticism that you have been talking about. So, can you highlight these, um, uh, you know, aspects a little bit in short? Yeah.
0: Sure. Um, One of the most fascinating aspects of Western Buddhism is the fact that it perhaps houses more nature mysticism than any other kind of Buddhism, except maybe the Chinese. And this is because of the way the West has understood Buddhism. Um, Emerson, Thoreau, the 19th century adopters of Buddhism, um, understood Buddhism uh, in this way, in a nature mystical way. And the Western tradition has continued. So you find many more interpretations of Buddhism as a nature mystical one in the West than you do elsewhere, uh, precisely because Westerners focus on that part. Um, Also, and this is really fascinating, a key feature of Western Buddhism in terms of our interactions with the non-human natural world is precisely the personhood approaches that I was talking about before. Um, These personhood attitudes um, in the current day are perhaps brightest in the Western world, at least in terms of the way that they become expressed in literature. The poet Gary Snyder is a Buddhist Buddhist poet who again and again and again talks about the non-human natural world um, as a person in its own right and consisting of other persons. Um, Another Western Buddhist, Stephanie Kaza, she talks about the same thing, uh, about how trees and rocks and so on should be considered persons to a Buddhist because this is the way Buddhists should um, interact with them Um, In terms of their spiritual experience and so on. And perhaps most interesting here uh, (laughs) is Philip Kaplow-Roshi, who understood animals as persons when he was alive and on this basis encouraged western buddhists to be vegetarian to be uh, vegetarians and this is why uh, western buddhism is the most vegetarian form of buddhism today because of the personhood relationships that kaplow experienced and the way he wrote about him wrote about them in his very influential book to cherish all life um, this has changed the Western Buddhist tradition, and there are perhaps a higher percentage of vegetarian Buddhists um, than in in the West than in any other kind of Buddhism, um, precisely because of this personhood approach background. And it's really fascinating to find this in Western cultures.
1: Great. I think you have really beautifully tied all the arguments and the chapters of your book. So as we come to the end of the conversation, do you have any concluding remark that you want to say or talk about your book in terms of what the audience, uh, what you want the audience to know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um... On one hand, my book is a little bit dark because I talk about the limitations of Buddhist environmental ethics. And I know some Buddhists who aren't really happy with me about that. They want me to talk about all the bright sides and none of the dark sides. But if I can end on a bright side, I will say that uh, among the world religions, Buddhism has as good a chance as any other religion to adapt to the world of climate change. Climate change puts all of us in a completely different world than than humans have lived in before, and this requires religious adaptation. And Buddhism has always been a very flexible religion. It has always prided it's, itself in terms of flexibility, and it also has these uh, personhood relationships that I've been talking about that can be turned in a new way. So... Buddhism is challenged by climate change today, but so is every other religion on the planet. I'm not singling out Buddhism there, Um, but I can say that compared to some other religions, Buddhism has as good a chance as any other religion as adapting and changing and in the future, helping us to uh, deal with climate change in more positive ways.
1: Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. So if anyone wants to reach out to you regarding your book or your work and, you know, ask some questions or kind of collaborate with you in whatever way possible, how do they reach out to you? What's the best best possible way to reach out to you? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, sure. I'm I'm happy if people reach out to me. I'm happy to have conversations. Um, I'm probably best reached by email at dcapper, D-C-A-P-P-E-R at msudenver.edu. And I'm happy to chat more. I I can talk all day about Buddhist environmental ethics. That's not a problem.
1: (laughs) Great, yeah, (laughs) great. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think it has been really enriching conversation, especially for me, and I'm sure the listeners have had a very wonderful time listening to this uh, very uh, conversation, and I encourage listeners to go get the book and delve deeper into the examples that are there and the different perspectives that are there. It has been really interesting for me going through the book and also much more interesting sitting with you here together and then having this conversation with you on your work. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kepper, for having this conversation. And for being here at New Books Network. Thank you very much and take care.
0: Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to speak to you, it's a privilege to speak to your listeners. Thank you very much for having me.